0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Start small. Get used to it. Have fun with it. Look at it as a research project. I actually ended up doing an experiment with the kids around cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, let's learn about it, let's open up accounts, let's buy a little bit, let's trade it, let's see if we like it and see if we wanna get more involved or not. I think it's a great way to approach a lot of different investing, which is just learn.
2: The Her Money podcast is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows that wealth isn't just about money. It's about everything money enables you to do. So how do you build wealth? Join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more. Hey everybody, thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money, I'm glad to see you all or to hear you all or to be talking to you all. I never exactly know what's appropriate on a podcast, but today's episode is one that, as we like to say, is by popular demand. We've heard from so many of you over the last few months about crypto, cryptocurrency. You wanna know what it is, whether or not it's safe, how to invest in it, how much to invest and so much more. And I got to say I'm right there with you. I feel like I need to learn more. Frankly, new asset classes, they can be intimidating. And after living through a time when so much has seemed uncertain in the markets, in the economy, in the world. I think a lot of people who might have been considering taking the plunge into crypto a couple of years ago are still sitting on the sidelines today saying, should I? Is the timing right? And my hope today is that today's show will answer all of those questions. And so let me just give you a little context. I'm going to give us some numbers to get us started. Between 2012 and January 2022, Bitcoin has gained 195,000% in value. The total cryptocurrency market cap stands at $2 trillion, a little over $2 trillion. And just to put that into context, that's equivalent to the eighth largest economy globally. The average daily crypto trade volume is 91 billion a day, Total venture capital funding for the blockchain industry and we're going to dig into blockchain. in 2021 was 21 billion up from three and a half billion in 2020, and 55% of the top 100 banks have made investments into blockchain technology, the technology behind crypto, which is why even the most skeptical among us, those of us who may have said that crypto was just a flash in the pan, have been stopped in our tracks. And so to help you understand and to help all of us understand the why behind these numbers, I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. He is a friend of mine. He's an advisor to Her Money Media, Bill Ullman. And Bill is the founder of The Daily FinQ, which is an app focused on financial literacy. You know we're all big fans of that. He's CEO of Water Street Advisors. He's also the chairman of the advisory board of Jewel, which is Bermuda's first licensed cryptocurrency-focused bank, and he is always the first person that I call when I have a fintech-related question. Bill, it's nice to see you.
1: Thank you so much, Gene. It's great to be with you again.
2: And thank you so much for allowing us to really get all of these questions just (laughs) out there and above board. And let's just start with the basics, the very basics. Can you give me a basic definition of cryptocurrency for those who just hear that term and draw a blank?
1: Well, I like to start with the granddaddy of cryptocurrencies, which is Bitcoin. So let's talk about what is Bitcoin and then we'll talk about what are cryptocurrencies overall. And I think people are naturally skeptical of new investments and new ideas within finance. And this is certainly one of those things. So way back in 2008, someone named Satoshi Nakamoto wrote a white paper about this thing called Bitcoin. And it was really a system and a currency for digital payments to take place over the internet, where you didn't have to know or trust the party, the counterparty you were dealing with. This paper is the foundation of Bitcoin and how it has come into existence. But there's some mystery around it. And a lot of people don't know this or may know this. Nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. This may be a group of people. It may have been a group of PhD professors somewhere. We don't know. So this paper just magically appears on the internet satoshi nakamoto goes underground and now we have this thing called bitcoin and you've gone through a couple of the numbers around its appreciation as an asset but let's talk about it for a second what is a bitcoin how does it exist so the first thing you have to realize is there's nobody and no entity no single entity governing bitcoin it is run by what we would call nodes, but think of computer servers all over the world that are constantly monitoring the Bitcoin system and the mining and the trading and the use of Bitcoin. So no central authority. It has a purely digital existence. It only exists in bits and bytes on people's computers or on servers all over the place, or even on a a USB drive if you take your Bitcoin offline. The transactions that take place with Bitcoin are recorded and verified on what's called a distributed ledger. This is the so-called blockchain that everyone talks about. What is that? Well, I like to think of it, I mean, this is probably a bad analogy or not a perfect analogy, but as a giant spreadsheet in the sky, in the cloud that exists on servers where lots and lots of different parties are able to verify the transactions that take place. And bitcoins themselves are mined. Think of the way we mine gold. That's a physical asset that we pull out of the ground. But bitcoins are mined from computer servers, essentially where equations are being solved. And once they're solved, a Bitcoin is created and that's verified by the other nodes in the Bitcoin network. And they're verified and therefore now a Bitcoin exists. And then but it can it's be no
2: traded.
1: coin. There's no physical coin. So here's some other features of Bitcoin. There's a limited supply. There's only 21 million Bitcoin in existence, of which around 19 million today have been mined or out there trading. So there's only two more million to go. So this gets into supply issue, which we'll talk about and why people think it's anti-inflationary. How do people hold Bitcoin? Where do you hold it? If it's not in your pocket, you know, jingling around like change, how do you hold on to it? Well, you hold on to it in what's called a wallet, a digital wallet. Not unlike if you own stocks through Fidelity or Schwab or TD Ameritrade or any of your online brokers. You don't actually see the physical stock certificates. You log into an account and it says, oh, I own 100 shares of Microsoft or IBM or whatever. So. You would do the same thing with a different group of companies today but these are wallets so the biggest one is coinbase which went public last year so you can hold it online in a wallet or you can hold it in what's called cold storage and that means you download your bitcoin onto a usb stick and you take it out of your computer and put it in your safety deposit box or you put it in your nightstand drawer and you hope nobody takes it away from you and knows your passwords and keys to get into it and steal it from you. So those are the two ways to hold Bitcoin. And then one of the good analogies, I think, with Bitcoin is think of it as digital gold. So gold in and of itself is both a store of value. People have often owned gold to hedge against inflation over long periods of time. That's been a a long time investment since the earliest days of humankind frankly and it's also been a currency right people used gold to pay for things and why could they do that they could do it because it's transportable it can be broken up into little pieces you can have little gold coins right and you could pay for things with it well bitcoin has some of those same properties in the sense that it's transportable we effectively can zap it around the internet online and pay for things digitally just like you would do with PayPal or Venmo, and also it can be broken up into little pieces. You don't need to own a whole Bitcoin. You can own a fraction of a Bitcoin and pay for things. And in
2: fact, with Bitcoin prices where they are, most people can't buy a Bitcoin anymore.
1: That's correct, because it's around $42,000 a coin today. And finally, what's also similar about gold and Bitcoin is the market, meaning all of us collectively out there that are thinking about and trading and buying and selling Bitcoin every day, the market determines the price of Bitcoin. There's no government that tells you what it's worth. There's no individual out there that tells you what it's worth. It's collectively who wants to buy it at this price and who wants to sell it at this price. And if there's a meeting of the minds, a trade happens and that is the price of Bitcoin so that's kind of like gold is today right there's nobody that controls gold now governments we could argue used to control the supply of gold and things like that but gold is just determined by the market and it's what the market thinks so people though when it comes to money have this really difficult time thinking about well i I can't get my arms around why it's worth what it is well guess what it's worth what it is because that's where the market says it's worth Today. 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 And
2: that was an incredible explanation, right? I mean, I love the think of it like gold. That actually makes sense, right? And it makes sense, too, when we talk about inflation, which I want to come back to. But let's just answer the question that I think is on so many minds. Is it too late? Did I need to buy this last year? Did I need to buy it 10 years ago with only 2 million more Bitcoin coming into the supply, has the ship sailed?
1: What I would say is this, don't only think about Bitcoin, we're gonna talk about other cryptocurrencies. There's lots of ways to invest in this trend towards digital money and digital assets. Is it too late? I would say absolutely not, to invest in this overall asset class. I make no predictions about Bitcoin itself. But what I would say is, if you think that demand for Bitcoin is going to continue to increase, and it seems to me that around the world, Bitcoin is getting more and more well-known every day, every week, every month. And remember, this is a global phenomenon, not just a U.S. phenomenon. That's a really important point.
2: Let's broaden the scope you talked about crypto beyond Bitcoin. There are other currencies.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I did a presentation over the summer and I was preparing for it. I think I counted up at that point over 300 different cryptocurrencies. You may have heard of some of them like Ethereum or even Dogecoin, Polkadot, Solana. These are some other cryptocurrencies out there that have also attracted lots and lots of investors and users and so today if you added up the value of all of these currencies combined together you're something around two trillion dollars trillion with a t put that in perspective there's about 11 trillion dollars of mortgage debt outstanding in the united states which is one of the largest asset classes in the world so we're starting to get into pretty meaningful numbers.
2: So how do we give it a place in our investing lives and in our portfolios? I mean, when we think about it, is this an asset class that belongs in our 401ks? Is this an asset class that we should only be thinking about if we've already maxed out our 401ks and done it with a diversified portfolio of traditional stocks and bonds? Is it somewhere in the middle? And there are all sorts of rules of thumb out there when we talk about diversification. And I think about things like company stock, right? There are people who say, well, you should never have more than 10% of your value or 25% of your value in company stock because – if you were to lose your job because the company hit hard times, you're too exposed to that, right? Is there a rule of thumb for crypto? And then how do we get that diversification that you're talking about?
1: So great question. There's a lot in there to unpack. So the first thing I would say is one of the really cool things about crypto is it's actually far more approachable, than you might think. And if you're worried about how much to invest, start small, get used to it, have fun with it, look at it as a research project. Crypto came along fairly suddenly for me in the in like 2015, 16. I started hearing about it because I was working with a lot of younger people at a lot of uh, fintech companies. And then I started talking to my daughters about it and they brought it up at dinner. They said, dad, have you ever heard of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin? And I actually ended up doing an experiment with the kids around. Let's learn about it. Let's open up accounts. Let's buy a little bit. Let's trade it. Let's see if we like it and see if we want to get more involved or not. I think it's a great way to approach a lot of different investing, which is just. Learn, read, learn, do your homework understand it get used to it trade it buy it sell it there are some very well-known reputable companies out there today gemini coinbase even fidelity has a way to invest in crypto now so again you could do your own homework and come to your own conclusions but open up an account put hundred dollars in it put 500 whatever a really small number is for you Buy some Bitcoin. See what happens. It's not the end of the world. If it goes down 50 percent, you lose 200 bucks or whatever. Okay, But hold it for a year. Again, see what happens. Maybe do what a lot of advisors tell you to do with stocks, which is to dollar cost average in. You don't need to rush in and buy tons of Bitcoin or tons of cryptocurrency all at once. You can be programmatic about it. Take some of the emotion out so that you're not totally focused and crazed about the price volatility of which there is a lot or can be a lot. And then the other thing you can do if you want to go beyond Bitcoin is take the top 10 cryptocurrencies out there. And there's many lists out there you can look at, whether it's Ethereum, Tether, Binance, Cardano, Dogecoin, whatever. Buy a little bit of each one. Create your own diversified portfolio of coins. Now, that's just one way to approach this asset class you can also look at the stock world and buy some of the publicly traded companies that service this market whether it's coinbase or silvergate bank silvergate capital in san diego which is the banker to many and many of the crypto players out there or coinbase which is the largest wallet and exchange has over 40 million customers So sometimes it's better to own the casino than to own the chips (laughs) in the casino. But you need to think about that. As far as figuring out which coin is going to be the next great one to invest in, I, I can't offer any advice there. I think that's a real insider's game. And those are the people who are like true crypto junkies playing that. And I suspect that's not who's listening today. Certainly it's not me. It's funny though.
2: No, it's not me either, but it's a question that we've seen in the Her Money Facebook group. You know, people are trying to project what's the next bitcoin and right. and I'm in a Facebook group of Peloton moms who like to talk about stocks as well and it's a point of conversation there. I did exactly what you're talking about. I opened a Coinbase account. I like to automatically invest on a monthly basis for all of my goals. It's how I paid for college. It's how I paid for the trip I took for my 50th birthday, as our listeners know, because I didn't want to deal with the credit card bills that came after. And so it's how I've approached this. And just to be really honest, for everybody who's listening, I was not early to this party. We wrote a story, Catherine and I, for a publication that goes out to kids in schools. We had a partnership with the PwC Charitable Foundation for a number of years where we produced an in-school magazine that went to 2 million kids. And we wrote a story about Bitcoin. And at that point, Bitcoin was about $7,000. And did I buy it? I did not buy it. To me, it felt a little too risky. I wish I had bought it, but I agree with you. I think digital money is a part of our future and figuring out a way to own it or participate if it's something of interest to you makes sense. I want to come back, Bill, and I want to talk about fraud. I want to talk about inflation. I mean, we could just go on and on. But before we do that, it's a great time to remind everybody that Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And I hope you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for our brand new show. It's called Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in and we'll explore how your financial decisions can shape your life and why wealth is about more than just money. Money. Experienced wealth planners and financial professionals will talk to us about tax-efficient investing, planning for the next generation, retirement, and so much more. It's your money. Make the most of it. New episodes premiere each weekend and will be available on major podcast platforms. And of course, you can visit everydaywealth.com slash hermoney to learn more and to subscribe. I'm talking with Bill Ullman, founder and CEO of the Daily FinQ and Water Street Advisors. So, on a recent taping of Everyday Wealth, Soledad and I were talking to an economist named Larry Kotlikoff, who is at Boston University. He's written a number of best selling books. He's got a new one out called Money Magic. And I'll get this quote slightly wrong, but when the topic of crypto came up, he said it's an inflationary bubble waiting to pop. And I know you made the point that actually people are investing in crypto as a hedge against inflation. So can you dig into that a little bit for me?
1: With all due respect to the professor and his worries about this is an inflationary bubble ready to pop, from a Bitcoin point of view, we have limited supply. We have a total supply of 21 million. There's only going to be two more million coins mined. And so I think this is the very definition of something that's anti-inflationary because we can't create more of it the way we seem to create more dollars and euros and other currencies around the world. So now the counter argument may be that There are other cryptocurrencies where lots and lots of supply can come onto the market. And in that case, I suggest we all do our homework and figure out which ones have kind of greater chance of more coins, more crypto being created. And those may, in fact, have some of the characteristics Professor points out and may, in fact, be in a more bubble type form. I think with anything that has a limited supply to it and you have growing demand in theory that asset should increase in value not go down now having said that again the market will do what the market's going to do and another factor that we we haven't discussed and i just want to mention as a it's a general risk to the industry is that one of the things that's happened is that a lot of people have made a lot of money in bitcoin and in crypto so The one rule that exists out there regulatory wise is crypto is considered property. So when you sell it, it's a reportable event and you have to pay taxes on that on that gain. Well, what do people often do with appreciated stock or any appreciated asset or even our homes? You borrow against it. That's a non-taxable transaction. So there is a lot of leverage now in the system. Okay. Now, what did people do with that leverage? Did they buy real assets? Did they buy more crypto? Did they just hold on to the cash? I don't know, but that can create a bit of risk. So if you see the price decline and people getting effectively what we would call in the stock market a margin call, where you have to either give up the stock or put more money in or whatever, not a good situation, you could see prices come down more rapidly, more quickly when that happens, and it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy or whatever, that prices can come down quickly if there's a lot of leverage. But we don't really know exactly how much leverage is out there yet, but it's something to be mindful of and understand.
2: And it's one of those things that does argue for buying over time, for not exactly. going all in, for dollar-cost averaging, a, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Let's dig into fraud. Because we've all read the headlines of people who lost the USB drive or lost the password and had millions in Bitcoin that is really, truly like lost like you'd lose a $20 bill.
1: Correct. So with respect to true fraud in the industry and losing your keys or your passwords is not really fraud so much as just an unfortunate accident from an investor, but true fraud where somebody steals your identity or someone or some organization hacks into your account and literally takes your Bitcoin the way a bank robber would go in and rob your safety deposit box in a bank. That is actually, despite the headlines, a very small percentage of what goes on.
2: So I get what you're saying. The headlines are bad, but when we look at it in the scheme of things, it is not as bad as what's going on in other parts of the world. As we head forward from this conversation, if if you're thinking, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to do this. You mentioned a helpful rule of thumb in an earlier conversation that we had with you about no more than 1% to 2% of your portfolio belongs in crypto. I just want to make sure that that is still the case. And then what do we do first?
1: Let's go to the first step, and we'll go to the rule second. The first step for anything you do with respect to investing is to learn read, and do your research. There's so much information today. And I'm going to point to one newsletter that I subscribe to. It's put out by a company called Coindesk, Coindesk Coindesk.com. If you go there, sign up for the newsletter, or just read their blog, you will learn a ton about Bitcoin, about crypto, about NFTs. We didn't even talk about Non fungible tokens. Today, we'll say that a whole other show
2: We'll do a whole NFTs. other show on that, which
1: is just as fascinating, by the way. So the first thing you have to do is read, because if you don't read and learn, you are just investing blindly, and that's a huge error. Now let's go back to how much you invest. What that rule of thumb should be. Well, I look at what a lot of institutions around the world are doing. A lot of really smart people like the harvard endowment or the yale endowment or pension funds and what they have started to do is put one to two percent not more than two at this point but one to two percent allocations into crypto currencies and bitcoin and digital assets and so that seems to me to have some validation in the marketplace as a way to go. And again, as you as an individual investor get more comfortable with anything over time, you can then take a little more risk, increase your allocation a bit. If you don't like the volatility and there is volatility in this asset class, keep it at 1%, keep it at less than 1%. But doing nothing, I think, and ignoring it is probably not a great way to go.
2: Bill Ullman, thank you so much. We've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time. I feel like we all just got 101, and we will continue to learn, continue to focus on this, do our 201 and 301 shows, read more, bring you back, ask questions. I am just betting that our listeners are going to respond with mailbag questions. This is just what happens in her money land. We do a show and we get mailbag questions. And so if we get the mailbag questions on crypto that I'm expecting, will you come back and answer them in a special mailbag?
1: I would be honored anytime. I love the topic and it's it's really an exciting development in finance. Thank you.
2: And thank you so much for the work that you're doing with us. We so appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
2: I'll bring in Katherine Tuggle from Her Money in just a second, but it's a good time to remind everyone that Her Money is also supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that provides a wide array of financial products and services for its members. If you are currently exploring the auto market, BCU offers financing and refinancing options as well as an exclusive auto buying service to save you time and save you money. And you can learn more at bcu.org. And Catherine, I got to tell you, I was just reminded again why I'm Happy to have BCU, which is one of the country's leading credit unions, on board. When I got this survey from Rate Genius in my email earlier this week, and it pointed out that in 2021, consumers saved an average of $1,158 per year after refinancing their auto loans. People don't even know that you can refinance auto loans in many cases. But what happens when you go into a car dealership in so many instances is that you get so caught up in shopping for the car and getting the best price on the car that you forget to negotiate for the financing. And credit unions tend to have among the best financing deals going. So whether you're looking to Buy a new car, buy a used car, or if you feel like, hey, my credit is really good and the rate I'm paying on my auto loan is really not, look at refinancing. I mean, you can save yourself some significant money. It's just one of those things. And it is a simple, simple transaction. I know people think refi and they think mortgage and they think paperwork. This is not that. This is like a half an hour of your time and save a thousand bucks. So, just my two cents. Anyway, Catherine, nice to see you.
0: Hey, Jean, so good to see you. It's so funny you brought up our work on that story we did to explain crypto to children because I remember thinking then, I wonder if I should invest. And it is now, you know, nine times the price. We just wrote that story just a couple of years ago. It blows my mind. I know. I know, but I also
2: think about stocks like Google and Apple. And if you go back, I don't know of a point in the past few years where you might have looked at those companies and not thought, these are really expensive. And yet, that's not the question to ask. The question to ask is, do I want to own it? At this price? Not do I want to buy it at this price, but do I want to own it at this price? And I think putting that lens on it is just a helpful way to frame any investing decision.
0: What do you think about people investing in something that they don't entirely understand? Because I don't think the average person is going to fully get what is actually happening with mining with blockchain technology. If you don't fully understand all that, is that still okay to invest in something that you have question marks around?
2: I think we invest in things we don't fully understand every single day. I know it's a money rule, right? That if you don't understand it, you shouldn't buy it. But quite frankly, if I were to pull apart all of the stocks in the index funds or mutual funds that I hold and try to understand their businesses, try to figure out where their next best play is going to come, I don't have a handle on that. And that's the point of diversifying. That's the point of making bets on many of these companies, many of these currencies, as well as the companies that provide the rails that these currencies operate on. I think the bigger question is, do you see a future for digital money? And if you see a future for digital money around the world, then this is somewhere that you should be investing.
0: I love that. Such a good point. Thank you. Let's try to go to
2: some questions that I do have answers to.
0: Amazing. Well, for starters, we don't have a question. We actually have a follow-up from a listener who called in last year. Her name is KD. She says, Dear Jean and Catherine, I got to listen to the 300th episode today while shoveling snow from our driveway. I'm very excited about the new Edelman partnership and Jean's pairing with Soledad O'Brien. What fantastic resources.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you. I've been thinking for months that I owe you a follow up to your recommendations on the mailbag portion of episode number 258. As a reminder, we were weighing college options between a smaller private college and public schools, both in state and out of state, and how we'd pay for it all. We did not receive as high of a financial offer from the private college as we'd hoped. As you advised, I reached out to the financial aid office. They said that there was some possibility to review numbers again, but that they wouldn't be able to give us that answer until after enrollment deposits were made, and they reviewed funds remaining because other applicants were not attending the school. Although the deposit would have been financially feasible, the idea of placing multiple deposits for enrollment and housing at multiple schools was daunting, and even our rising freshmen realized this. So he and we chose not to enroll in what we thought was his it number one school. However, he is doing very well at the out-of-state public school he chose, and we are all thrilled at the options it has provided to him. As the next round of students approach these financial decisions, I just wanted to let them know that they can ask the financial follow-up question, but it truly is a journey that's different for each student, and they need to be braced to go to their plan B if it doesn't work out but it may be for the best. Thank you both for the guidance you provide.
2: Oh, thank you so much for the update. I'm so glad that he's doing well. And I've heard a number of stories similar to this following this last college admissions season, one from my very own family. I have a younger cousin. Her name is Evan. She was a rock star student. And applied to and got into some Ivy League schools, but she also got a full ride, like full ride to the University of Delaware, where they have an incredible program that she happened to be interested in. And the bottom line of that is because she was able to preserve the funds in her 529 for other options for future things, she's having these incredible experiences like spending a month in France learning to cook, right, as part of a school program that she can pay for through her 529 and looking at other incredible abroad programs. And so sometimes when we choose not to go with option number one or what we thought was the number one option on our list. I think it just opens other doors that we didn't necessarily expect to
0: be available to us. And those doors can be really, really exciting. Such a good point. I love hearing that option B turned out for the best. Many, many of my option Bs have turned out for the best over the years.
2: Me too. Me too.
0: Our first question comes to us from Natalie. She writes... Dear Jean and Catherine, I just recently discovered your podcast. Well, admittedly, I just recently got into listening to podcasts, and I really appreciate all the advice you share. I remember loving your articles in Money Magazine back in the day. My question is this: I opened You Promise 529 college savings accounts for both my children years ago, but we haven't been able to put much into them. My investment choices have done well, and my daughter's account has about $7,000 in it currently. She just turned 17 and is taking dual credit classes at a community college to fulfill her prerequisites and plans on attending the same community college for her chosen career. Currently, the money is in a more aggressive portfolio, and I wonder if I should move to something less aggressive so she doesn't lose what she has so far. She's getting close to finishing high school and will graduate in May of 2023. I could move some of the money into a moderate portfolio, 50% equity, 46% fixed income, 4% money market, but I'm also looking at the SPDR Dow Jones REIT ETF portfolio. Do you have any suggestions on what allocation I should change it to, or should I change it at all? If you do suggest to change closer to college, at what point in time do you suggest I do it? My son is almost 14 and at the moment has the same allocation. Thank you so much for all your great advice. Well, thank you so much for the great
2: question. And just so... I level set for people who are listening because that was one big list of initials that you spelled out there with that investment that she's considering. The Dow Jones REIT ETF portfolio is a REIT, a real estate investment trust that is an exchange traded fund, which means it trades like a stock just so you know the lingo before I answer the question. So Natalie, it's a really good time to be asking this. I would, in fact, move your daughter's funds, probably not even to a moderate portfolio, but probably to a conservative portfolio. And here's why. The closer that we get to any goal, the more conservative we want to be with our money. Because if the market were to take a tumble and she were to be heavily invested in stocks, she could lose a substantial amount of that $7,000 and not have enough time for the markets to rebound and for her to be able to regain that ground. When I was making 529 investments for my kids. I basically was aggressive for them when they were in elementary school and probably through about half of middle school. Then I moved them to a moderate portfolio. And by the time they were in sophomore, junior year of high school, we were conservative. And so I think... You should be conservative with your daughter's funds at this point. I think you should probably think about moving your son's funds to the moderate portfolio in pretty short order, and then just keep adding to it along the way. I mean, the risk in doing this is that if the markets continue on their run, you won't capture as much of the gain. But I think the potential loss, particularly for your daughter who's so close to college, outweighs that, and so I'd make that choice sooner rather than later. And although the REIT portfolio is attractive and real estate is doing incredibly well, I wouldn't do it. I would just go with the more diversified
0: mix. Diversification seems to be the rule of uh, today's entire show. It does. <laughs> It really does, whether we're talking crypto
2: or whether we are talking anything else. Thank you, Jean. Thank you so much, Catherine. Before we dig into our thrive, I have a favor to ask all of our regular listeners. I wanted to know if you might be interested in joining something that we are putting together called the Her Money Council. Basically, we're asking you to be one of our advisors and to weigh in with occasional surveys on research, on events, on content, on the big ideas that we are trying to put forward. For doing this, we will give you a more direct line to the Her Money team. We'll give you invitations to special Her Money events. We've even got some really amazing giveaways planned. So, if you're interested, please follow the link in the show notes or email contact at her money and we'll get you added. Look, we try to base everything we do on you and on what we think will resonate with you. And so this is just our way of putting ourselves a little bit closer to our audience. So I hope that you will be willing to help us out with this. Thanks so much. And in today's Thrive, how to create a vision board for your financial goals this year? When the Her Money team looked at our calendars this week, we spotted National Vision Board Day on the list, and it got us thinking about all the various goals we have for our finances. Could a vision board help us in meeting our financial goals? If so, how? Well, we decided to write an article about it at hermoney.com. We break it all down. I think I should mention, because we've got finance fix classes coming up, creating a vision board is something that we do in that program. It's something that I am a big believer in. I have made vision boards throughout my life. For starters, it is just important to visualize your goals. It's important to actually be able to see them. Pictures can be more effective than numbers. And having a vision board that you can revisit regularly just offers reminders of what we're working toward and why we want it. So Pick out your five core values. Pick out the things that you value most in your life. For example, family, work, community, philanthropy, education, the list goes on. Spend some time deciding on these. Then find a picture that best represents each of your values. You can find photos online and print them. You can go old school and take a look through a magazine, a newspaper, any other inspirational source. For me, House is always a big source of inspiration. I know some people go to Pinterest. And then decide on your financial goals for 2022. Pull pictures that correspond to those goals. The images should help you actually be able to see reaching the finish line every single time you look at them. Then stand back. And just look at your board and see if you can align those goals with your five core values. Is there one that you know that you want to put at the very top of the list? Are there a couple that don't seem as important for you to knock out this year? Mix and match until you're happy with everything that's on your board because the goal is that you'll check it frequently. Perhaps it lives on a bulletin board, in your office, in a journal, in a notebook, or just on the home screen of your computer. Try to evaluate your goals and your board every quarter in case you make some changes or add or subtract. And of course, you will want to check items off your list once you've made progress. Hey, feel free to share your vision boards with us. We can all start dropping them into the Her Money private Facebook group and give all the other wonderful women in our community a chance to see what's going on in our lives. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Bill Ullman for walking us through the world of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and all things Bitcoin. It was tremendously fun, but also such an education. I hope you found it valuable. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.